Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our text for our sermon is recorded in the Gospel history according to St. John in chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Amen, amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples were looking at each other, uncertain which of them he meant. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to find out which one he was talking about. So leaning back against Jesus' side, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I have dipped it in the dish. Then he dipped the piece of bread and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do more quickly. None of those reclining at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Because Judas kept the money box, some thought that Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the festival, or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. This is the gospel history of our Lord. God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and its existence literally gave Adam and Eve the knowledge of good and evil. To eat of it would be evil. That's it. So they knew what evil was. And every minute they didn't eat of it, they were obeying God, glorifying Him, worshiping and praising Him. The devil wanted to destroy creation. So he didn't come to Adam and Eve and say, you know how God made everything and he made a great garden. Then he made you two last so that you would see this is all for you and even walks with you. Oh, no. The devil comes with that. Did God really say? And when Eve says, you know, no, there's one tree we can't eat of or we will die. He says in Genesis chapter three, verses four and five, you certainly will not die. In fact, God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When I was a kid, I used to watch cartoons where they would, uh, they would dangle something. If it was Scooby-Doo, it was a Scooby snack. But they'd dangle something that the person's heart content would be on, and it was like it, it, it hypnotized them. The rest of the world didn't matter. So the devil dangles the bait with a lie to Adam and Eve. You will be like God. Never mind the fact you actually really are. And look, God's withholding something good from you. Look at all the good that could come from you. Don't you want this? And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we're told, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was appealing to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. See? See how she sees all that? And she's going, ooh, like Scooby. Scooby snack. Now, I, I don't mean to insult Eve or Adam at all. We're told she took some of its fruit and ate. Bam, that's it. Now, you know the disgusting thing is? What we're told happens next. She gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Adam should have, from the get-go, been saying, I heard this from God, and this devil's trying to deceive us, this snake. He, he might not have really, he obviously didn't realize it was the devil. Let's get out of here. Instead, he stands back and lets his wife eat of it. She doesn't instantly die. Boom. Ooh, she must have gained that wisdom. I want it too. Kind of sad, isn't it? In all of this, there is a betrayal of the Lord because God had done nothing but been good to them. And so when they ate of that fruit that was actually meant for their good, think about how they were betraying God. Oh, you couldn't possibly be doing good for us. You must be hiding something from us. 
And so today, as death came to them through that eating of the tree and even through their own betrayal of God, we see from Judas's betrayal, we see that Christ overcomes death for us by overcoming its betrayal. He uses Judas's betrayal that he gets nailed on a tree that he could give you and I life. So, what shiny object, what thing did he hold out for Judas that he would covet, that he would lust after, that he would do anything to get his Scooby snack, if you will? What was it that the devil used? We have to rewind a little bit past Palm Sunday uh, and Holy Week, and John records that for us in chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Then Mary took about 12 ounces of very expensive perfume, pure nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Let me stop there before I continue the reading. 300 denarii. A, denera, a denarius was a day's wage. And if you consider the Jews took Sunday or Saturday off, the Sabbath day, this is clearly a year's wages. Doesn't that sound pious? Ooh, this could have been given in other ways to glorify God and help other people. What a waste. But then we hear verse 6. He did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He held the money box and used, it, and used to steal what was put into it. <laughs> 300 denarii, he could get a handful of that and put that in his pocket. Remember that sometimes when people start talking about how churches should spend money, sometimes they're being good stewards. Sometimes maybe the money itself is their heart content and they're not sounding as pious, but that's what it is for Judas, the money and the things it could buy. He wanted to line its pockets. Now, we fast forward a few days later. Our text takes place right before Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And probably right before, I mean like within an hour before. But the day before, Wednesday before that, Matthew records in chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, then one of the 12, the one named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand, over, if I hand him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Remember, they wanted to arrest him away from the crowds for fear that the crowds would turn on them. Now Judas can feel the gold. He's got it. He can feel it between his fingers, but it's not his. It's not truly his until he betrays the Lord, until they're able to arrest him away from the crowds. Now, then, a few verses before our sermon text, John records in, 13, in chapter 13, verse 2, By the time the supper took place, the devil had already put the idea into the heart of Judas, uh, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Judas wanted the silver. He cared about that silver more than he loved God, the God-man, his Savior. So don't kid yourself. It's not that the, that the devil just possessed him and made him do it. The devil found a willing heart and planted the idea. Now, as Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, this is, we'd already had a sermon on that in John 13, verses 18 through 19. Jesus says, I'm not talking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is so that the scripture may be fulfilled. One who eats bread with me has raised his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this right now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am he. I'm he means I'm God. Now, uh, Jesus had taught, was talking about someone who has had a bath only needs to have his feet washed because he's clean, but not all of them were clean. Judas was not clean, and the reason is Judas has turned his heart against the Lord, and by doing so, he has rejected the forgiveness Christ would be winning for him on the cross in less than 16 hours' time. But the other thing he says, so that scriptures, uh, we're told that this happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I'm he, but uh, so that scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, we got to be careful how we understand that because it's not God decided that Judas would have to betray him and then the scriptures would be fulfilled. It's that God who knows all things knew Judas's sin, planned to use it. And so he recorded it in the Old Testament so that when it would happen, and Jesus even spells it out so that it, when it happens, the disciples would be able to turn to that word and find comfort and find encouragement. But you know, the same could have happened for Judas. As he began to struggle with that sin, wanting those 30 pieces of silver, even up to this point, Jesus is giving him an opportunity. He's basically saying, I know you're going to betray me. And Judas could turn to the word itself, to Jesus. Or Judas could have gone to a priest or something like that. In an Old Testament priest, of course, the temple was closed at this time. He'd have to wait till the morning and, and hear the word of God and be strengthened to resist that devil. Don't kid yourself. He's rushing headlong because he wants that, that silver and he has only himself to blame. Now, after Jesus has washed the feet and then he says, uh, the one who receives you receives me and the, and the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. What he's saying like to the apostles and to even you and I as we share the good news of salvation in Christ. When somebody listens to that word, Christ is using you as his mouthpiece and, the, and, and so is the father. You have all the authority of the triune God standing behind you. We're told in John 13, verses 21, uh, then or the beginning of our text today. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Amen, amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples were looking at each other, uncertain which of them he meant. Why didn't Jesus just say, I'm telling you the truth, Judas is going to betray me. I think we're given a very strong hint at that when they say the disciples were looking at each other uncertain which one they meant. Believe me, as a pastor, it's a, I've seen, you can walk up to a member at some point in time and say, is there anything you'd like to talk to me about? You might simply mean because you're the only two in the church and they showed up to clean and you just wanted to see if there was anything they'd like to talk about. But they'll turn around and say, why? What have you heard? And you can do that to other pastors too. Don't we have a, we have a guilty conscience in many ways? Sometimes we'll turn around and start thinking of our own sins. Yeah, we can look and say, "Well, I can see so and so doing that, and so and so doing that." But we'll also arrive, and we find out from uh, the other guys who wrote the gospel who record this event that the disciples themselves even began to ask, "Is it me?" See, by doing it this way, Jesus gives each of the disciples an opportunity to search in their heart. What is the thing that I would betray the Lord for? What do I covet? But he's also giving Judas the chance, once again, to turn in repentance and stop, to pump the brakes. Jesus, literally by doing it this way, throws a speed bump into Judas's plan. We're told in verse 23, one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. If you've ever seen a 
picture or a painting of the Lord's uh, at the Last Supper where he's celebrating the Passover feast. By the way, if there's fish or something on it, they've already got it wrong. But when you see them sitting at the table in chairs, they've already got it wrong. Because in those days, they, the tables were only about this tall and they reclined on cushions around it. So uh, the, the, the disciples are reclining around this. And we already see one of the ways that people can be uh, petty and, and jealous and covetous and, and, and want to betray for things. Because many people, when they hear one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, they think Jesus is playing favoritism. He didn't love the other 11. Don't kid yourself. Jesus showed a lot of love even to Judas, whom he knew was going to betray him. This is John using the Greek language's way that the disciple John of saying the disciple, uh, Jesus's best friend. And that was John. John's very humble in how he refers to himself. So it's important to understand he's at his side because after all the disciples searched their own hearts and everything, verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to find out which one he was talking about. So leaning back against Jesus' side, he asked, Lord, who is it? Now, Jesus doesn't turn around to say it's Judas. Nope, once again, verse 26, Jesus replied, it's the one whom I, will, whom I will give this piece of bread after I've dipped it in the dish. Then he dipped the piece of bread and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Very interesting, the bread, Passover bread, was yeastless because as Paul said to the Galatians, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. In other words, you put just a pinch of yeast into a lump of dough and it will spread, and that's sin. And he dipped it into the bitter herbs and spices. God had commanded that to the Israelites for the Passover meal to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery to Egypt. And here Judas is acting as the devil's slave and his sin is going to lead to even worse sins, just like a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. But it's also interesting. This is the Passover meal and the very last Passover meal Jesus will celebrate. Think about how close Judas actually was to Jesus. And think about the fact that he's getting bread. And yes, as he dips it and hands it over, it gives Judas yet another chance to think about what he's doing. Jesus keeps putting out speed bumps for him, if you will. Judas had been called even to be a disciple. Jesus knew all along Judas was going to betray him, but for three years he got to baptize people and see the work of the Holy Spirit that they would trust in salvation. He'd get to hear the good news of salvation in Christ from Jesus' own lips. So when he goes forward with his plan, don't kid yourself, he is resisting a lot. God had been very kind and gracious, even let him be one of the 12, where he would put every speed bump, every opportunity for Judas to set his heart off that silver. And you see also in those three years he'd been a disciple, the proclamation of the good news of salvation Christ, that's the gospel, had provided for his physical needs. He didn't have to stand out in the freezing rain. He had clothes put on his back. He, he was given food. And even this very night, Jesus himself is giving him bread in that. So you can't claim that he needed that money as if, oh, poor Judas, he just didn't have anything. He was hungry. No. Jesus had provided for all of Judas's physical needs over the last three years because he was sharing the good news of salvation in Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus would also take care of his emotional needs. Look at how even in this dinner, when you realize Jesus in love is going out of the way to tell him, you can pump the brakes on this, my friend. And let's not forget, again, get to proclaim the word and everything. Jesus is taking care of his spiritual needs. Jesus has told him, I'm your savior. He'll even tell the other disciples, you're all going to flee tonight. But when you get, come back together, when you, you know, I, I forgive you and I'm, I'm going to send you out into the ministry. 
Judas will reject that. So in all this, Jesus has actually given Judas many opportunities to repent and stop this. And for the others, all along this, we see that Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and he was in complete control. Because to us, it often sounds like he's just the victim of a big railroad job in the Sanhedrin and a bad buddy, right? But Jesus knew it, and he was in control, and he went through it, so that, and he voluntarily went through it, so that not only could he die for the sins of the, of the disciples, he could die from your and my sins, and he would die for the sins of the world. Now we're told in verse 27... As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do more quickly. None of those reclining at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. At this point in time, Judas, after three years of hearing the gospel, after Christ himself telling him, it's pump, pump the brakes, pump the brakes, throwing speed bumps in the way, Judas's heart is set on that silver. He covets it. To covet is to want something God has not meant for you, and it's clear he hasn't meant it for you. Maybe he's given it to somebody else. It's called the hardening of the heart, and the best biblical example is Judas himself, but we also see it in Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Originally, Pharaoh had his own opportunities to finally say, yeah, I'll let Israel go. And in fact, even the, is, even the, the other people tell him, the other Egyptians, let him go while we still have a kingdom to rebuild. There's just about nothing left. But eventually his resisting God and the plagues and everything, God finally said, fine, have you already told Moses because God knows everything. It's how it's going to happen. Doesn't mean that God said it has to happen this way. It means God knew Pharaoh was going to fight. And he's finally, I'll tell Pharaoh, fine, have it your way. From now on, whenever you hear this, your heart's only going to be hardened. You're only going to hate me. You're only going to resist this. And it led to Pharaoh's destruction. When, when Satan enters Judas's heart, Judas is now past the point of no return. He had put the idea into Judas to betray the Lord for that silver, but now Judas has, Judas has let that silver, he loves it more than he loves God, more than he loves his salvation, and the devil now has him. His heart is hardened. And from here on out, anything else, any other proclamation of the word of God is not going to help him. It's also interesting when Jesus says, what you're about to do, do more quickly. It was not meant for him to betray the Lord on Monday, Thursday. Now, I'm speculating here using a little bit of logic. But for example, on Good Friday, when the Sanhedrin doesn't want to go into the Praetorium because they don't want to become ceremonially unclean, being around the Gentile Pilate and all the soldiers, it seems to me we can guess that what Judas was supposed to do, and I again say guess, he was supposed to betray the Lord to them when the crowds were dissipating and leaving Jerusalem and the ceremonies are over. Jesus is in control. Ha! Huh? This is the night that I, the Father, and the Holy Spirit have picked, and now it's going to do. It's now it's going to happen. You go and do it quickly. So we see again that Jesus is in complete control, and He plans on doing this so that you and I can be saved. Now, the interesting thing is. After Judas does betray the Lord, and now those 30 pieces of silver are his, does he hold them and say, oh, it was all worth it, it's so great. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he felt remorse. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, and he said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? That's your problem. Those 30 pieces of silver had become putrid to him. Verse 5 of that same chapter of Matthew says, He threw the pieces of silver into the temple and left. Then he went out and hanged himself. 
The other disciples fled from the Lord too, and had he trusted in God's kindness, he would have found Christ died on the cross for him too. But he refused God's forgiveness, and he did a tremendous act of unbelief. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, for what would you and I betray the Lord? When he, asked the, when he says, one of you will betray me, and the disciples are searching your own hearts, I told you, we'll get back to that. You and I, you and I each have our sins in which we might be willing to betray the Lord for. For many, just like Judas, it's money. And the material possessions and the things it will buy, the bigger house, the nicer car, the better foods, and all that stuff. And sometimes when they get it, they don't, they don't have any remorse. They say it was all worth it. And it leads them straight to hell, just part of the hardening of their hearts. For others, like the disciples that night around the table, we know that they were still thinking of a political kingdom, of a Messiah who would come chase the Romans out and take control, and as James and John, and they would repent of this. But they had already asked the Lord, let us be at your left and right. You know, give us political power. And sadly, many Christians, they get confused and they think that, that, the, that what the true salvation is, is working through your government to establish a utopian society. That always fails. Uh, and, and others, they think that maybe that's not the case, but if they can get the right laws passed, it'll finally open up people's eyes and lead them to Christianity. And it's amazing how often they'll turn their backs on the word of God and even invent millennial kingdoms and things like that because their hearts are set on the wrong thing. And they'll be willing to twist the word of God, which is just another way of betraying the Lord. For some, it's relationships. I've seen that in friends. I've seen that as a pastor. Well, Billy Bob or Jane, they're an atheist and they hate God. And, and, but I love them so much. I know this is going to hurt my faith, but it doesn't matter. And I've also known people who've married atheists and God has used their love for God to convert them. But others, they love their spouse more than, than they love God. And sadly, I've also seen it in friends and as a pastor where people, they, they, they meet Bob or they meet Jane and, and they're members of a church that they know teaches things contrary to the, work of God, uh, the word of God, things that are work righteous. But I love Bob, but I love Jane. And they don't even realize they say it. My love and, and wanting to be married to this person means more to me than my relationship with God. And they will, they will tolerate what they know is false teaching until it drowns them away and they no longer know it's false teaching or they fall from the faith. But let's not kid ourselves. A zeal for orthodoxy, maybe wanting the power and prestige it comes from coming across as one of the great restorers of the church. A zeal for orthodoxy can lead people to things that God's word doesn't even teach. You got to bow so much at this time in the worship service and do these sort of things or pit God's word against itself or make a list of rules to follow that, that contradict the gospel. They'll betray the Lord and, and those things actually would be turning from the word of God. For some people, it's power like power in government or power at work, that they'll turn around just to get that power and quit coming to hear the word of God and work extra on Sundays. For others, it's prestige. And let's admit it, especially as you get older and things like arthritis starts to set in and you start struggling more with body parts wearing out. Some Christians, sadly, and you don't always have to be old for that to happen. It can just be a major health issue. Some Christians, sadly, will turn their back, betray the Lord, and go off to weird voodoo doctors and things of the occult because they've heard that this will heal them. Yeah, let's admit it. With the right Scooby snack or shiny object that we covered held before our eyes, our sinful nature may just betray the Lord like Judas too. What are we to do? This is why Jesus 
And we see, again, the ultimate example of his, what we call his active obedience, obeying God's law perfectly for us all the time and crediting us with it. But we especially see that when he's tempted by the devil. You can't fast 40 days and 40 nights without breaking some kind of rule. In this case, God the Holy Spirit and God the Father had to be keeping him physically alive. But it's clear his tummy felt all the hunger pains. And the devil says, turn these rocks into bread. So the things that are bodily needs, Jesus was tempted with those, but he withstood them for us. The devil shows him all those kingdoms and you can have these if you bow and worship me. The devil offered him power. The devil offered him something you and I don't have to worry about. A shortcut to the agony of the cross. Don't need that agony. But Jesus withstood that for us. And even prestige, throw yourself off the temple here. Show everybody. The angels will catch you. Everything will be great. Jesus withstood that temptation for us. So you and I are credited with his active obedience, but you and I have many times where we've bit at that Scooby snack, haven't we? Even when it's clear God doesn't want us to have it. So what did Christ do? Christ did. That very night, he, he did allow himself to be arrested. He did that morning allow himself, true God who has become true man, to be nailed to the cross. And he did die for you and I. And he did defeat death for you and I so that he could overcome this betrayal and wash away your and my sins. But it doesn't end there. Later in the conversation after Judas is left in John 14, verses 15 through 18, seems to me this is after, the after he's instituted the Lord's Supper. We're told, if you love me, hold on to my commands. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he stays with you and will be in you. He promises the Holy Spirit who has created faith in you and that Holy Spirit has given birth to a new person in you who is united to Christ in, in a mystical union that you and I cannot understand by the rules of physics and science and everything. So that Jesus also adds in verse 18, I will never leave you as orphans, I'm coming to you. The Holy Spirit lives in your heart, you're united to Christ and Christ says, I'm never going to obey abandon you. Not just that, but Christ has given us that word and you and I can see its fulfillment. So we see we can trust and rely on it. And the Holy Spirit leads us back to that word using our new man that's engrafted to Christ. And he's made us priests. So you and I are brothers and sisters. And when you see that shiny bobble, that Scooby snack that may lead you to betray the Lord, you can confess that to a brother or sister in Christ who will say, let's pray about this. Or if you have fallen, they'll say, they'll be the mouthpiece of Christ and say, in Christ that sin has been forgiven. Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, Adam and Eve truly betrayed the Lord who had given them no reason to think that he was holding off any good from them. He had showered them with his good and his love. And the Lord then would use the betrayal of Judas to go to that cross so that he could overcome death and its betrayal. Christ overcomes death for us by overcoming its betrayal. Amen. Now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.